Good morning. My name is Grant. I'm also one of the pastors here. It's good to be here this morning. I don't want that. Uh, today's message is called, There's No Such Thing as Standing Still in Religion. It's taken from Luke chapter 19 and the parable of the Manasseh. And uh, before we get into it, um, let's just pray that God would speak to us here this morning. Uh, Father God, we have your word. What a gift in our lives. And God, I ask that this morning your Holy Spirit um, would cause for your word to be alive in our life. God, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us and challenge us. God, that you would point us to worshiping Jesus this morning. We pray for this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, what if you were trusted with $26,080 of God's money? What if you knew at some point he would come to see what you accomplished with his money? What would you do first? How would you make that money push forward God's interests? Would you be excited about the opportunity? Would you be nervous about the responsibility? Another good question. Why are we talking about $26,080 precisely? Here's how I came to that number. The average wage in Calgary is $32.60 an hour, which means for an eight-hour day, that equals $260.80. And if you worked for 100 of those days, you would earn $26,080. In Jesus' day, that's called a minah. A minah is what a worker could earn over a 100-day period. Each day's wage is called a denarius. So 100 denarii, one minah, $26,080 in our current um, situation. The parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 19 is about servants who are entrusted with one minah each. So the context for this parable is that it is sandwiched in Luke chapter 19 between the story of Zacchaeus, which takes place in Jericho, and the Palm Sunday events, which take place in Jerusalem. We are right at the very are very close to the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm right up at the beginning of the Passover feast and celebration. And there was a group of people who traveled with Jesus, and they saw the signs that he did, and um, they, they heard him preach. And I think for the most part, they were very convinced he was God's Messiah. He was the one who was going to free them. And they were becoming very excited about the real possibility of Jesus' now triumphant return to Jerusalem. And they were really expecting that the kingdom of God would appear right then and there. They were envisioning being free from the Romans. They were imagining what it would be like to have a true Jewish king once again leading his people. They were pumped. It was becoming obvious to Jesus. And so in verse 11, we see why he tells this parable. As they were listening to this, this being what happened with him and Zacchaeus, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. They were hoping he would establish his kingdom, and he would, but it was not going to look like or feel like what they were expecting. So the parable is to help refocus and clarify his expectations. So let's read the parable. It's a story that tells biblical truths. Verses 12 through 27. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called ten of his servants 
gave them ten minna, and told them, Engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to, so he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your manah has earned ten more manah. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your minah has made five minah. So he said to him, You will be over five towns. Another came and said, Master, here is your minah. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, Take the manah away from him. Give it to the one who was ten manah. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minah. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. So the parable begins with a nobleman who travels to a far country to receive authority. Who do you think the nobleman in the parable represents? It's Jesus. The kingdom of God is not about to appear in that moment in Jerusalem and change everything. Instead, Jesus is going to go away and receive authority. What his servants do during his time away becomes the focus of the parable. And the servant's task is to engage in business. We see that in verse 13. He called ten of the servants, gave them ten minutes, and told them, engage in business until I come back. So at this point in the parable, he is not yet a ruler. He does not have authority. He's a nobleman. This means that his servants have to have some sort of faith that he is going to return with the authority. Do you think the servants will act according to their faith? I think so. I think that the ones who believe he's going to return with authority will act that way, knowing that he'll return, knowing that they have to give an account. And I think the ones who don't think that he will return will act based on that assumption. Maybe they'll squander the investment. Maybe they'll do very little, but their actions will reveal what they really believe. What's the currency in the parable? What are we talking about here? Well, when you become a follower of Jesus, there is no check written for you in the amount of $26,080. Or $26,080. Um, you might be saying, too bad. But the minna in the parable is representing something besides a financial currency. So we see in the parable, it's the equal gift given to each servant. They all get the same amount. What is the equal gift that is given to everyone who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ? What do we all get that's the same? Salvation. We get eternal life. We get this good news of the gospel that we were lost and now that we're found. And that, that good news can go to anybody from us. 
And not only do we have the gospel and salvation working in our lives, but we have God, the Holy Spirit, with us as well, helping us, empowering us, encouraging us. So in the parable, each servant received the identical investment of a minna. Maybe when we're looking towards the application here, we need to see that we're all going to be accountable for this gift of salvation in our lives. We won't be able to point to someone else and say, well, they received more, so therefore they did more. We're all given the same gift. There's also some adversity that is represented in this parable. There are those who would oppose this prospective ruler. Verse 14, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. So when the parable is given, there are Pharisees at that time who were both religious and political leaders, and they are actively working against Jesus. It is not hard to imagine them going before the throne of God and saying about Jesus, we don't want for this man to rule over us. But the whole idea of a nobleman going to a far-off country to receive authority and come back was actually a familiar content, or a familiar idea to the people of those days. That's because of King Herod's son, Archelaus. Do you remember King Herod from the Christmas story? Well, once Herod dies, it's not a sure thing that his throne will be passed on down to his son. And the reason why is because Herod was operating underneath the authority of the Roman government. In fact, Herod himself had first traveled to Caesar in Rome to receive his authority, to receive what he could um, have as a kingdom over the Israelites. So when he died, his son, Archelaus, did the same thing. But the Jewish people did not want him to rule over them. And so what they did was they sent a delegation along with him. Um, and so when he went to make his request to Caesar, this delegation said, we don't want for this man to rule over us. Um, side note, he gets the authority, um, he comes back, he builds a stately palace in Jericho, which is where the same place where Jesus is telling this um, parable. And history will tell us that Archelaus um, is actually quite an incompetent ruler. He really messes up. Uh, the authority is taken back, and five procurators come in his place. The fifth is which is uh, Pontius Pilate, who we know is alive at the point when this is given. So, in Jesus' parable, the delegation is not successful in their attempt to take the authority away. The ruler is given the authority. He returns now with his authority to see what have his servants done in his absence. What did they do with the money that he invested in each one of them? Let's see the servants' results and rewards. We should also take note that the ten servants in the parable would represent in totality all the servants of Jesus Christ. That means if you are a follower of Jesus, you are included in this number. We're only given the results of three of the servants. Maybe those are just three results that we could think about this morning. So, servant number one. He is able to demonstrate a 1,000% return on investment. Verses 15 to 17. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to, so we could see how much they'd made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, here Minah has earned ten more Minah. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you've been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. Wow. So that, that is an extravagant and proportional reward that is given out. 
One minna was a hundred days' salary. Ten minas, a thousand days' salary. In today's dollars, that would look like the return of about $260,800. That's a lot of money, right? Good job. It was impressive that he was able to get a thousand percent return. Still, think about it. In today's market, is $260,000 going to buy you a house here? No. What's the reward, though? He gives him authority to rule over 10 towns. That's an extravagant reward for the return that he did. It's both extravagant and it is proportional. The ruler has returned with authority and will rule his kingdom by delegating that authority to the servants that he can trust. We see now that the time between the advent of Christmas, Jesus' first coming on earth, and his second coming, this period that we're living in is a bit of a test period for how we handle the currency of the gospel. Who are the ones that our ruler can trust? He will trust the ones who have been faithful. Um, second service, or second servants, Luke 19, 18, Luke 19, verses 18 and 19. The second came and said, Master, your manah has made five manah. He said to him, you will be over five towns. Once again, the reward, extravagant and proportional. Maybe a good picture of God's fairness here. Does not show favoritism based on which one he likes best. He's God. Um, unlike us, maybe. God does not have favorites. But he is proportional in his extravagance. Servants are being rewarded in proportion to their production. So the Bible teaches us that we ought to store up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Am I living for what will bring me a a temporary and a fleeting joy on earth? Or am I living for what will matter for eternity? Uh, That's a question I constantly have to ask myself. There's also the response of the third servant to consider. He has no return to show in a poor excuse. Verses 20 and 21. Another came and said, Master, here is your minnah. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you are a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. Well, what would you say if you were in that position? How would you try to explain to Jesus that the King of Kings, you did absolutely nothing with the resources that he entrusted you with? Uh, The servant's response really makes no sense. Um, It puts on a perspective that he's got this really not correct fear of his master. He's calling him harsh and things like this. Um, So when the servant starts talking, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's it's a foolish explanation that's given. I kept your investment safe in a cloth. That is not what investments are made for, to be kept safe in cloths. How many of us keep this gospel, this salvation to ourselves, though, uh, wrapped up in the cloth of our own lives, considering that maybe it's just for ourselves, for our own blessing and enjoyment, and it never gets out, and never does what it's supposed to do around us in the world. Jesus has called each one of us to make disciples. He wants for this salvation to be for you, but also to bless the people around you so that good news goes forward. So there's a multiplication of salvation being done through each one of our lives. He's called us to make disciples. That that um, command, that authority is given out in Matthew 28, 18 and 19. 
Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So if we stand before Jesus at his second coming, when he has returned triumphantly as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we have nothing to show for this investment, what will we be able to say to explain ourselves? We have his gospel. We have his authority. We have his Holy Spirit. We have salvation in our lives. What we don't have is a reasonable excuse for ignoring his command. The servant in the parable tries to say that he was paralyzed by fear. He didn't put his money to work because he was afraid of losing it. I picked up the binder and dropped it, and I think I might have woke somebody up. Well, he was afraid of losing the investment, so he didn't put it to work. Maybe that's true for some of us as well. Uh, We're saved from our sins. We're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, entrusted with Jesus' authority to make disciples. But maybe we're fearful of what it would cost us to obey. Ah, fearful of what it would do to our relationships to act on this. Maybe scared of what the prices that we'd have to pay with reputation. Uh, worried how about how, how will this affect my income or my safety or my security if I am trying to multiply this gift of salvation out around me? But how does the king reply to the servant who did not obey? Uh, we see that the king's reply shows that the fool is answered accordingly. Verses 22 and 23. He told them, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. Here's a question. If you think that your master is harsh, then shouldn't that create motivation? It's... He's saying, because you are harsh, I did nothing. But like, if you know that your boss at work is harsh, is doing nothing really the best move? Or if you are a student and you know that you have a teacher with enormous expectations, is the way to win by doing nothing? No, it's, it's a foolish answer, really. And investing the money in the bank might have been the very least that he could have done. But I think that it's clear that this servant in this parable has made a major miscalculation. And what I wonder is, did this servant expect that his master would return with the authority? Maybe his miscalculation was that he thought the master would not return. He would never have to give the account. The servant's actions show that he was not living in expectation of that master's return. What do our actions show about our heart's expectation? Are we acting as if we believe that Jesus will return, that he could return any time? How will he reward you, his faithful servant, for how you have used his gift of salvation that he entrusted you with? What does he do with the servant in the parable? Verses 24 and 25. So we said to those standing there, Take the minah away from him. Give it to the one who has ten minah. And but they said to him, Master, he has ten minah. And we can imagine that the servants there were thinking, this isn't fair. You should maybe distribute it to us. Why give it to the one who has so much? But the ruler is actually both wise and fair. He's smart. The other servants don't think it's fair. But who's the one that's in charge of the evaluation anyway? 
It's the ruler who's got the final say here. Um, so often, the temptation is live to be evaluated well by the people who see us. But we ought to be living for the evaluation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's his evaluation that matters. Jesus is both wise and fair. And he demonstrates wisdom by giving the minna to the one who has shown the greatest results with the previous investment. He knows what to do with it. Is the judgment fair? Well, if that servant who has squandered the minna and hid it in a cloth can't be trusted with that, why should he keep it? Why shouldn't it go to a place where it can do better work? Charles Spurgeon says this about the parable. The gracious and faithful man obtains more grace and more means of usefulness, while the unfaithful man sinks lower and lower and gets worse and worse. We must either make progress or else lose what we have attained. There's no such thing as standing still in religion. I've seen this principle play out in my life and other people's lives as well. I'm generally either moving forwards or I'm moving backwards, but I don't stay still. I'm going in one direction or the other. And so when I read Spurgeon's quote, I said to myself, I found the title for my sermon. Because I think it's a good reminder for me and for us all. We're not standing still. And my prayer, my hope, is that God would use this this sermon to encourage us to move forward together and to see God's gift that he's trusted trusted us with of his salvation multiply out through our lives. Uh, What I don't uh, want for you to do this morning is beat yourself up. Maybe you're moving backwards and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to lose everything. Um, now, there's, we have all this time. Well, we don't know how much time we have on earth left. We don't know how much time on earth we have left, but we have time. And what we have now, we can say, God, redeem this time. Let me use it for your glory. Let my life be for you. Um, show me how I can bless others and encourage others and share the gospel truth with others. Let your salvation message just embody who I am. Finally, the ruler doesn't take away uh, the ruler who takes away the minute from that servant, the minute is taken away, but he's not kicked out of the kingdom either, is he? At the end of the parable, he's still in the kingdom. The enemies of the kingdom, they got a different fate. But before Jesus says what will happen to them, he gives us the principle of the parable here. In verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, and from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. The point of the ruler giving a minah to each of his servants was not to make them rich. It was to give them a job to do so that he could evaluate their work. Everyone who has, more will be given. What is the has? Uh, what, what do they have that, that is being talked about here? I've said earlier that we're talking about the gospel, salvation, the good news, um, the, the opportunity to live our lives according to, to the gospel of Jesus. Can that gospel or that good news be taken from us? That's, that's not how I'm reading this. What I'm seeing here is the responsibility that accompanies the good news about Jesus. This whole idea is, if, if I know that I was lost, and that I've been found, and I've got this blessing on my life, this salvation working in me, do I not now have a responsibility to tell others that good news? Do I not have it on me that I can't keep this to myself? It must get out through me? That, that is what I think is being talked about here. 
And if we neglect that kind of responsibility to share and live our lives in such a way where God can multiply his salvation through us, what will the eternal ramifications be? Well, when I look at this parable, I can see that in eternity, each one of us who follows Christ in this life will still have work to do in the next life. I mean, heaven's going to be glorious. There's, there's not going to be sin there. It's, it's going to be a rest from everything that's wrong in the world. But I believe there will still be work to do, and there will be ways that we serve God there. And he's looking for who he can trust with his responsibility. The parable shows me that how I live now will have an effect on, how, on what God trusts me with for eternity. And I know that God's rewards are extravagant and proportional. How will I live as a result of this parable? How does it conclude? Verse 27. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. This sounds harsh to our ears. Very unpopular in a pro-tolerance world that we live in. Nonetheless, this parable points us forward to the coming of Jesus. Jesus, on his return, will be the final judge. And the results of being his enemy are terrible. And there's really just no sense in watering down a truth which Jesus says so clearly here. It's just a sobering thing to think through. And it should encourage us all the more to share this salvation with whoever we can. Now, the good news is that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. That is why he came. It's it's amazing to think that while we were still enemies of Christ, while we were living in ways that were harmful to his cause, that were against the way he made us, we were basically living in sin, in that state, he died for us to make a way for us to have eternal life. That is God's love. While we were still his enemy, he made a way for us to be reconciled and to be made a part of his family. That's the good news. And God is not willing that any should perish. Church, we've got this responsibility. Let's get out. Let's let God's salvation ripple through our lives. Let's see what God would do. And this could also be a call to legalism if we did this the wrong way, couldn't it? We could have a list of, have I obeyed enough? Have I reached enough people? Am I doing this correctly? But it's, instead of that, let's make it a call of God's grace. God, we are available to be used by you. Use us each day this year to just be available for you to show us who we can bless, show us who we can speak truth to, show us who we can encourage, show us who we can pray for, show us how we could encourage each other because we can't do this alone, can we? So here's a summary and an application. The parable was given so that people would recognize that the kingdom of God was not about to suddenly appear and change everything about their current condition, especially in the way that they wanted they weren't about to receive a Jewish king who would defeat the Romans. Instead, we see here that one day, Jesus will return with ultimate authority. He will come back as king of kings and lord of lords. Is he that right now? Yes, he is. He's got the authority, and he's given it to his church to go forward with. But one day, he will return, and it will look very different. That hasn't happened yet. We're in the middle of that time. And the servants of Jesus have been given this gift of salvation. The gift is not just for you. It's for you to have and for it to change your life and to share with the people around you. It ought to be multiplied out. For one day Jesus will return and you will see that our time, we see that our time with his salvation on this earth is going to be evaluated. 
and extravagant and proportional gifts will be given by that ruler, Jesus Christ. What we do with our salvation now matters for eternity. Well, if you were a follower of Christ, you might be feeling the weight of responsibility that comes with this information. We are not to carry this weight on our own. We have two key helpers I want to draw you to this morning. Number one, we've got the help of the Holy Spirit. The help of God, the Holy Spirit, for each one of us. God himself will help you to live out his salvation. To multiply this out through things like discipleship. You are not alone. Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit will not abandon you. Every single Christian, every single one of us can have this gift of salvation multiplied out. We can see God at work in our lives. We can expect for that to happen because every one of us has God's Holy Spirit. Secondly, we all have the help of Christian community. So I want to encourage you to become a part of a small group of believers, um, brothers and sisters who will pray with you, encourage you, challenge you, support you in this important endeavor and responsibility because we all need help. We've all got blind spots. We all need to be encouraged. Um, We all have glaring weaknesses. We all need to know what it feels to be loved by other people. Um, We need to be in good, close groups of Christians. And so um, if you are not part of a group like that and you want to be, um, there's two things you could do that are easy for me to point out this morning. Number one, uh, come and talk to me and I can take your information and help to organize some of these things. Um, Secondly, on the contact cards that are available, there is a space that says I want to be part of a small group. Check that off. Um, If you're already in a small group, great. Let's keep it going and, and work towards this cause. If you are not a follower of Christ, well, then I want to consider, I want to encourage you to consider becoming one. A follower of Jesus is someone who acknowledges they need help, and they acknowledge that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Basically, you're saying that Jesus' way of living is way better than your way of living. Uh, Someone who follows Jesus is someone who acknowledges that their way of living, their way of thinking, their way of acting, it's just, it's bent. It's, it's, not, it's not right. It's not as it should be. They acknowledge that without Jesus, we're lost, which is a universal truth. And when we follow Jesus, we're saying, make, make it right. Make, make the wrong right in my life. I could never do it on my own. But Jesus, you can, because you're the one who has lived this obedient life, and you've died on the cross, and you've been resurrected. You're God. You can make it right in my life. He can forgive us of the things that that have gone wrong. And when we commit to following his ways, we're acknowledging that his way is the real way. It's it's the real life. So if you're not a follower of Christ, I would just encourage you, slow down. Take some time. Think it through. Consider the costs. You're saying, it's not my way of thinking I want. It's God's way of thinking. So that means you've got to put aside the way that you used to think and learn together with other people. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it he teach, what does living for him look like? Consider that. And, and, and maybe have a conversation with myself or someone else in this church. We'd love to talk to you about what does it look like and feel like to be a Christian who trusts Jesus with how to live. Well, I hope that this parable has been one that's helped us this morning um, to use the time that we have here on earth for God's glory. And I would just pray that throughout this season of life that we have and through it all of our lives, that God's gift of salvation would be working in our lives, 
that we would be going forward and not going backwards, and that we would get to see God at work in amazing ways um, in the people's lives around us that we love, in our neighbors, in the people's lives around us that God loves. So may God bless each one of you this morning. May the truths of the parable go with us, shaping how we see the world, affecting how we use our time. Let's close our service with a song, and then we'll have a, a blessing and a benediction.